Thanks very much for checking out The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards, and today, at last, the podcast we've been promising for a while now, Your Questions. When we put out the invitation, it was great to see how many of you sent in questions about wine, winemaking, about Schaefer, and all kinds of things. Thank you all so much for your questions. They've been great. Now, I'm joined by a special guest, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer. We've got a, a, a different type of episode today. It's a Q&A, <laughs> questions and answers. And our co-pilot is Spencer Christian, who, if you don't know, I'm going to give you a little quick bio. He spent 13 years as the weatherman, weatherman on Good Morning America. He is a true wine pioneer. He created the first show on national TV that was all about wine, which was back in 1990 or the 90s, called Spencer Christian's Wine Cellar, which was on HDTV. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's also a nice guy. I like to drink wine with him. Uh, (laughs) He's met met everyone you've ever heard of, from Muhammad Ali to Bill Murray to Henry Kissinger. He now does the local weather here in the Bay Area on ABC7. And uh, we're lucky to have him back, our first guest who's ever agreed to come back. <laughs> Usually they, well, they, they get done and they run. Spencer, welcome back, man. Hey, Doug, it's always great to be with you and always great to talk about wine with you. And, you know, the main reason I'm back uh, is that, hey, you're a good friend. But the second reason I'm back is that you promised me a taste of some Schaefer wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But... Yeah. We're we're not together, so we're going to have to do it a third time. What's this pandemic? I, I'm going to have to yeah, exactly. I was going to say I'll have to come up there and visit you as soon as this pandemic is behind us, and we will uh, we'll do some some sipping. Definitely. Well, we're going we're going to lunch for sure. I'm yeah, buying. No, so. That's that's for sure. Well, you know, we've got a bunch of questions here today, Doug. Uh, you want to get right into them? And- Let's get. You're the question man, and I'll be the uh, I'll attempt at the answers. And if I need help, <laughs> okay. you can help me out. So I'll start with this one. This is from Sarah Barber. And she says, Doug, love the podcast and notice that over the last year, the pandemic comes up uh, a little bit, but not a lot. I was wondering how the COVID situation has affected things at your winery and at other Napa wineries. Do you think any of the changes you've seen in the last year are long term? Wow, that's a good one. Yeah, Sarah, we, yeah, we haven't focused too much on the pandemic. I think we try to make an effort just to keep this thing a little bit of a break for everybody since it's been such a you know long tough year with the whole pandemic thing but um it it definitely hit the napa valley and the wine country it hit our winery um i mean not literally just figuratively just with the stay at home basically we, sh- we shut down the winery to visitors uh in march 2020 um and are still closed to visitors uh i sent everybody home and some folks are working remotely some are coming in it's been very very casual the the priority at Schaefer is safety and and safety and healthiness of all our folks that work here so it's been uh, an interesting time it's kind of wild the the vineyard guys and all vineyard operations are totally normal um Hmm. but they're because they're able to work 10 15 20 feet apart the guys for the most part so it's very safe Hmm. out there and the cellar has been totally normal. We've got three guys oh. in the cellar with Elias. They've got masks on. They can, he can, yeah. they, they don't ever have to work side by side. So those two operations have been kind of normal, which is kind of, which is great because that's growing grapes and making wine. The, the whole hospitality thing in the, at the winery, though, is totally shut down. So no visitors yeah. and skeleton staff. And basically, we're doing curbside sales. If people drive up in the parking lot, we can sell them wine. So, you know, will, will things stay? You know, and it's slowly opening up right now. It's um, early March in 2021. And there's a lot of wineries are doing outdoor tastings. Uh, just last week, they, they're allowing some indoor tastings, I think think that's kind of coming and going and yeah. uh so it's it's kind of creeping back to normalcy um we see, during the weekends we see a lot of tourists run around st helena and calistoga in napa everybody you know for the most part everybody's wearing masks which is great so it's uh yeah, yeah as far as long lasting changes hard to tell at this point it's just we're kind of taking it one day at a time 
Yeah, Doug, obviously, uh, based on your answer, it doesn't seem like production was affected, uh, but obviously hospitality. But um, I guess it's, it's hard to tell then whether there are changes that will be permanent, right, in terms of the way you sell wine or, 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 in, or in the way you do hospitality. It is. It's. I think it's too soon to tell, but I think there's. Uh, I think we've learned some things, and um, I think a lot of places have gone to kind of a reservation system for visits. And mm-hmm. I've talked to some of my peers, and they they say, you know, it's kind of neat. Um, people can almost you know book a tasting like booking a table at a restaurant, just for a more private that type of thing. And so maybe there might be a move away from the you know mass tastings, belly up to the bar thing, and more of a. Right. Um, Kind of a reservation system. Hard to tell. Okay. We'll see. Sounds, sounds good. All right. Uh, well, there's a, there's a question from uh, Tom Danchik. He says, uh, Doug, uh, uh, this is a great idea. Thanks for the opportunity to ask uh, questions. Is there a high temperature at which you would immediately be concerned about the quality of the wine in the bottle? Uh, is, is there a temperature at which you would not be concerned for days or weeks or maybe even months he says he would assume the wine could uh, take a higher temperature for a few days versus a few weeks or a few months. That's Tom's definitely got it right. I mean, if if a wine was at a high temperature, you know, basically the shorter time, the better. As far as the exact temperature that I'd be concerned about, I mean, if a wine was something like, you know, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, it'd be like, oh man, what's going on here? Let's cool this thing down right away. You know, ideal cellar conditions is in the, you know, 55, 58, 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Constant temperature is the real key thing for for wine quality and storage. I mean, even if you can't get 58 or 60, if you can get 63 or 64 and have that be consistent and constant, that's better than going from like 58 to 75, back to 55, up to 80. That's, that's going to beat up a wine pretty good in storage. So consistent temperature, I try not to get over the low 60s. Ideally, 58 to 60 would be great. A dark place, store the wine on its side, keep the cork moist. That's important so the cork doesn't dry out. Right. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, that's why, you know, sometimes you, if you walk into a, a wine shop and you've got, uh, there's some great bottle of wine sitting on the top shelf and it's not an air-conditioned room and it's standing upright and it's a 10-year-old wine, it's like, boy, I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't go there, you know. So, I have seen that so often, you know, and I wonder, uh, don't people in the wine business know better? I mean, <laughs> to keep a bottle standing up that long, especially an older bottle, you know? Well, you know, guess what? Guilty is charged. We've got a we've got a three liter bottle sitting out in the tasting room. You know, yeah. it's, it's a very lonely bottle right now because there's no one there, and it's a three liter bottle of 1978 Cabernet, which was our first cab, a gorgeous wine. I kind of really don't know where this thing came from. It's just always been there. It's a it's a etched bottle, and it's like. I'm, Elias and I were talking the other day. It's like, is it really the '78 or is it like fake wine we just put for for you know display purposes? So we really don't know. Uh, but, but it's been standing upright in a, in a, a room temperature, which gets you know hot and cold throughout the year. And so yeah, we're going to yeah. have to pop it sometime and see what it's <laughs> well, like. If that lonely bottle ever needs some company, let me know. I'll be happy okay. to make the drive. You know, just just one more thing, if I can throw in a sure. a, a, a personal experience about storing wine. When I first got into collecting wine, keeping it at home. Um, this is like the late 1970s. I was working for ABC in New York, and I lived um, in a you know nice little suburban community over in New Jersey. And I had um, a, a full a, a um, full basement in my home, right? Right. So I partitioned off a section of my basement, uh, which was fully underground, as my my wine storage area. Uh, there was no window there, and it had a it was on a part of the house that faced north, so it never got direct sunlight during the day. And without any temperature control device, if you can believe this, my uh, room temperature down there never got above 65 degrees in the heat of summer. It never got below 52 in the dead of winter. That's and perfect. My, and it kept my wine without a, yeah. a, uh, a temperature control device. So. I guess I got lucky. Yeah, I mean, anybody with a, if you got a basement, you got it made, but this is the key. I mean, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I've got a whole winery here to store my personal wine in, so it's temperature controlled and, you know, alarms and all that. But most folks, you know, you're dealing with, how do you do it at home? And, um, 
Years ago, I had a garage where I built a closet and put a little tiny uh, air conditioner in there, and that worked pretty well. You doing the basement thing works great if you've got a home that's got underground storage. So, um, right. but it can right. be a challenge. Sure, um, yeah, it can. It can. Well, let me let me move on to the next question because people want to hear their questions, not mine. <laughs> no, I want to hear yours. Yours are good. <laughs> this is from uh, Marie Fran Nieves in uh, Tacoma, Washington. She says, "Hi, Doug." I really enjoyed your book, which I finished recently. I noticed it was printed in 2012, so it ends talking about what things like what things were like at Schaefer and in Napa Valley during the recession from 2008 to 2011. If you were writing this book today and it was coming out in 2021, what else would you be able to write about? How would you? Um, how do you think you would end it? Man, was it that long ago, 2012? Yeah. I can't. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's like nine years. Uh, well, I guess we'd have to add a few chapters. Um, let's see. Well, in 12, right when the book came out, that's when the uh, 2008 Relentless was announced as Wine of the Year by the Wine Spectator. Oh, and yeah. that was And that was wild. That was, uh, wow. that was really crazy. Um, it was crazy, crazy good and great recognition for not just Relentless, but, but Schaefer Vineyard. So that was a real fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, 2014, I think that's the year dad turned 90. And uh, it was, we had a couple of great parties. We had a big family party only. Family only was about 40 of us. And that was that was wonderful. And then uh, a couple months later, we had friends in trade here at the winery. It was like 250, 300 people. And, you know, it was great. He was sharp and on it, and he was there yeah. to be uh, recognized and toasted and celebrated and gave a couple great speeches. And, you know, and it happened while he was that's alive. Awesome. That was yeah, so, that's We lost awesome. him in 2019. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. But he was a great life, 94. Um, in 2017, we released, um, our new wine called TD nine. That was when we moved from Merlot to a Merlot slash Cabernet Malbec red blend. Um, and that was kind of fun because I mean, we don't offer, we don't release new wines. I mean, we do it every 10, 12, 15 years. So that was a big one. And that's been a, a lot of fun. Um, that Where'd wine's, that name come from? That, TD. Good, yeah, TD good question. Look, that tells the John Schaefer moving from Chicago story when he moved us out in 73. He went from uh, mm. riding a commuter train to downtown Chicago in a suit and tie to driving a TD9 tractor here in our ah, Napa right. Vineyard. It was this right. old tractor we found <laughs> out here. It came with a ranch. And, you know, so all of a sudden he's got jeans and a straw hat. And I've never seen the guy. I've never seen a bigger smile in my life. That, that he guy. loved it. He, oh. he loved it, right? Yeah, I'd come home from school. I was in high school. I'd drive home. He's out there in the tractor, a big wave and a big shit-eating grin on his face. And just right, right, happy. right. And, I, you know, that, that actually, um, it kind of shaped me uh, in my career choices because at the time I'd grown up watching him commute to Chicago you know doing that commuter thing Mm -hmm. coat and tie and all of a sudden I see him jeans and a straw hat and you know we're working outside we're really happy and I think that's part of the reason I went to Davis was to study viticulture to try to have an outdoor life if you will so uh, absolutely it really affected me and what What was it that what was it that uh, six hour sheep video uh that, uh, oh, that was, <laughs> came out in 2020, that, right? 2020? Well, yeah. So, and then <laughs> to finish up these last nine years, we're finishing up with this pandemic thing. So it was about a year ago and we're all, you know, we're all, the entire world's like, what are we doing with this? And, <laughs> and, uh, I've got this Cracker Jack, you know, team that keeps our name out there all the time. And, uh, <laughs> Mr. Andy Dembski, and he came up yeah. with a great idea because he'd read some article about people stuck in their apartments, sheltering with, uh, big screen TVs and, you know, cold and winter. And they'd, they'd get a YouTube video of, of a fireplace burning and they just run that on the TV just to kind of warm up the room. If you, you know, not right, literally right. figuratively. Not literally, right. Yeah. And uh, and at the time we had our two annual two hundred sheep in into the ving- in our vineyards for two weeks because they eat all the cover crop down so we don't have to drag tractors through the field, and uh, he got this great idea and uh, we shot and pieced together six hours six hours of sheep grazing 
<laughs> in our vineyards. And it's really cute because there's little baby sheep because there's always a bunch of babies born when they're here. And, uh, and there's birds, you know, singing and, and, they're, and, they're, and the sheep are out there munching away. And, uh, you know, and bah, bah, a lot of that. And, and, and we put it on YouTube and it's gotten, I don't know, it's got hundreds of thousands of hits. And, it's and people, uh, people are writing in saying, thank God That's for the awesome. sheep. They're keeping me alive. I'm stuck at home. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, check that out. YouTube, you know, hit YouTube and go, you know, Schaefer sheep. I'm sure it'll pop up. It's pretty funny. I was just going to say, I have to add that drinking Schaefer wine is a sheer delight. And oh, I say that, oh, 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 oh. And I, I say that with a sheepish grin, but... Oh, God, God you're Sorry, on a roll. I, I love I, it. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. Can't. This is what you <laughs> do. <laughs> Let's move along to uh, Jeff Fowler's uh, question. He's from Hutchinson, Kansas. And Jeff says, I'm curious about the impact of longer barrel aging for wine. For example... The 2016 Hillside Select was aged for 32 months in 100% new barrels. Uh, why that length of time and why new barrels? Good question. Um, we like, well, we make really rich concentrated wines. The two that are the, the biggest and the most concentrated are Relentless and Hillside Select. And these wines, I mean, when they're first made, they, they're just black as night, black purple, mm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no aroma, very little aroma, and it's just, and their mouth is just massive, massive fruit. And to get that wine to open up, you need to age it a long time in barrels to have that. There's a slow oxidation that happens through the barrel stave to the wood, and that a softens the wine. It also opens up the nose, so there's better aroma. And we found with our two big wines, Relentless and Hillside, they need 30 or 32 months barrel aging to open up and really blossom aromatically. So we've moved to that over the years, that length of time. And new French oak is a beautiful thing if you have enough concentration uh, in in the fruit to handle it, to balance it. And these two wines do, especially Hillside Select. So Right. It, it, it's a beautiful marriage, and uh, the wine comes out very, you know, lovely balance. The oak is there, but it, it, there's so much concentration of fruit, it does not overpower the wine. So it's, um, that's kind of the formula we've, after 35 years, we've come up with. Now, we have a couple other wines, 1.5 and uh, TD9, other different reds, not quite as concentrated as Hillside Select. And uh, we age those in barrel a shorter amount of time, 18, 20 months, that type of thing. And also depending on the vintage. So it's kind of like being a chef. You know, you have to mix and match and know your ingredients and and work with it that way. But uh, uh, it's it's basically we've got big, rich, beautiful wines and they can handle the oak and they, they need that time to open up. Doug, how much difference does one type of oak make versus another for, for your wine? For example, you know, French oak versus American oak or Hungarian oak or Slovenian oak. Years ago, we used some American oak in our some of our cabs, but uh, we've gone to 100% French. It's uh, French oak, it's a, a little subtler flavor. American oak can be a little more aggressive. That, that doesn't mean it's a negative thing. It just means right. it, it'll be a little more, you, you'll notice it quicker than a French oak. Uh, right. French oak, and the character with French oak is a little more vanillin, uh, if you know, kind of French vanilla ice cream, if you will. And mm-hmm. uh, that we've found we like that that flavor profile with our wines. That's how that's where we go yeah. with that one. I, I guess uh, similar to to grapes, uh, the 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 wood is a reflection of the soil in which it's grown, just like grapes can be. I guess. Well, they can. There's different forests in France, that, and some of the we get, uh, get our wood from uh, areas where the the grain is tighter, if you will. Right. So the grain's tighter, um, so it doesn't impart as uh, it doesn't impart the the oak flavor as quickly as a wider or looser grain would. Right. Because there's forests right. that have that. Because uh, for that amount of time in barrel, we've got to have tight grain. Because if it was a sure. loose grain, it'd be way too much oak. Well, okay, Ron Green from Fair Oaks Ranch, Texas, wants to know, uh, on the podcast, you often ask people from family wineries about their uh, secret to success. What was the secret with you and your dad uh, or with any other family members? Oh, wow. Well, 
<laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, this guy, who is this? Rod. Rod's Rod, throwing, yeah. it, he's throwing it back at me. I, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> good for you, man. Um, we had a, my dad and I had a, a really unique experience, especially when I've talked to other people in other family businesses, whether they're wine or something else even. Um, I think the big key and obvious was communication. And just as important was mutual respect. Um, Even when I started here and I was green and kind of a knucklehead, um, he was (laughs) very patient. And I I don't ever recall one moment where he said, you know, something like, you know, you're an idiot. What are you thinking about? You know, nothing. It was always just he'd hear me out and we'd talk about it. Um, We worked so closely together and making every decision because when I joined here we were we were not you know as as popular or we weren't making the quality wines we are now so we really had to learn to figure it out but we kicked ideas around so often and so much even Elias too um by the time we make a decision we kind of already knew we were going to do it for example I, I can remember <laughs> one time this actually happened um he goes I was in his office and he goes Hey, I've been thinking about something. I want to get your opinion. I said, I held up my hand. I said, wait. He goes, what? And I grabbed a piece of paper and I grabbed a pen and I wrote down, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, opening up, you know, the, the European market with Hillside Select or whatever it was. And, right. and I folded it up. I said, okay, what's on your mind? And he goes, I've been thinking about opening up the European market with Hillside Select. <laughs> oh and, and I opened up the paper and I showed it to him. He goes, wow. Because, I mean, we were just kind of like, even when we weren't together, we were kind of tracking. Yeah. And that happened, that, and Spencer, I, I'm not BSing you. That happened That happened five or six times. It was like, oh, oh, yeah, it was really kind of cool. You guys um, were in sync. <laughs> yeah, we were in sync. And so, and we... You know, if we ever disagreed, it was never like a, a earth changer, like, you right. know, like right. lying in the sand thing. It was just like, well, I really oh, don't man. agree with that, but I, but I can see where you're coming from. So what if we yeah. try this? And he'd go, well, what if we do this and take a baby step before we go full hog, full hog or something like yeah. that? So it, oh, was, um, it was a lot of communication and mutual respect. Yeah. And Mike, I got to tell you something. I got to give him credit. He when he turned this thing over to me in the mid nineties and said, you run it. And he was still around and very active, a very active guy. Um, Mm -hmm. he really did it. He stepped back and people would come to him and say, Hey John, what about this? He go, gotta go see Doug, gotta go see Doug. So he really let me run with it, you know, and succeed or fail. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I love this story. I love this story. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's cool. You have a question from uh, Sandy Leva of Scottsdale, Arizona. She says, what advice would you have for someone like your dad who wanted to get into the wine business as a second career, uh, in their late forties or their early fifties, what opportunities are there? And bottom line, do you have to be a billionaire? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sandy, that that last line hurts. That's what my answer is going to be. You got to be a billionaire. <laughs> no, that's um, no. You don't have to be a billionaire. Um, I think you've got to be really creative. I think you need to, first of all, think about what you want to do and what's realistic and what's affordable. And you know, making a top end Napa Cabernet might not be affordable uh, with what land prices are. So. If you do like wine, maybe there's a, another avenue, another type of wine, another style of wine um, grown in a different area. I mean, you've got the Sierra foothills. You've got Lake Counties coming on that's north of here. You know, Oregon, Washington, other areas where their land's not so expensive, but you can still grow and make beautiful wines. Virginia, Michigan. I've had some gorgeous yeah. wines from Michigan and Virginia. Um Arizona, you know, I taught school in Tucson, Arizona. They were growing grapes down there and making wine, good wines. Um, So, yeah, I think you have to be really creative. Um, I think you have to do your homework and pay really close attention to what's realistic. I mean, really what's realistic. And when you go into it, especially if you're going to build a facility, I mean, you need to overcapitalize you because things will come up you're going to have um something that you didn't expect that's going to cost another eighty thousand dollars or something like that mm-hmm. and not and beyond that you've got to have a game plan on how you're going to sell the wine and who's going to buy it and what they're going to pay for it and you really you should need to do your research on that and um 
you just can't do it and, and hope. Uh, trust me, I've, I've done that myself. You got, you've got to have a plan. And um, also, there's some really cool things happening with people making wine in, in warehouses, in urban areas, um, in Oakland and South Napa. Instead of having this having this pay all this money for a facility out in, you know, prime time expensive land in Napa and Sonoma, you can have a warehouse space in Oakland or Napa in the warehouse district and bring, make wine in it. You know, I mean, you got your equipment, you bring the grapes in and you go for it. It's a warehouse. I mean, it's, I mean, that's how you keep costs down. So, yeah. so you can do it, but you've got to be creative and do your yeah. homework for sure. I've seen a lot of those urban winemakers out there. I've visited some over in Alameda and yeah. Oakland. And yeah, they're, they're all around. Um, there's a question from um, Dave Gindin. Uh, he says, Doug, do you use open fermentation? And if so, uh, what do you see as the benefits? Uh, either way, what do you see as the pros and cons with this kind of fermentation? Okay, I think he's referring, Dave's referring to open top fermentation where you just have a big vat and it's open to the air. Uh, we do not have that. Our fermenters are closed top. I mean, there's a there's a big gate valve up on top. We can get a pump over device in, but we do not have open top. The, I think the tradition on open top was. Um, I was talking to Elias about that. We think it kind of came from the old days when there wasn't the cooling of the tanks wasn't available or wasn't as good as it could be as it is now. And so having an open top, it blows off heat because fermentation, you've got, mm. you're producing alcohol, but produces a lot of heat. And if it gets too hot, you kind of burn off some of the nice aromatics. So it could be, a, it could be, could be used, I think, just to get rid of heat, dissipate heat. That's maybe where it came from. Um, some people might use it today to blow off, <laughs> blow off some alcohol. So alcohol mm. is volatile during fermentation. I think um, in talking to a few people who've mentioned that you don't get a tremendous drop in alcohol you might get um half a percent something like that but that that could yeah. be a positive for doing it uh the negatives the reason we don't like it is because we think you lose volatile aromas some good aromatics because besides blowing off heat and alcohol you're blowing off fruit and and aromatics that we want to keep right. in the wine so we like to keep uh closed top fermenters that's that's our program makes sense from, uh, from Mike Reef, or it could be Mike Reif, in New York. New York, New York, my old stomping ground. He says, hi, Doug, I was wondering why you use such heavy <laughs> bottles for Hillside Select. <laughs> Have you considered using bottles of similar weight as Relentless? Um, I know you want to make them special, but does it need to be in the weight of the bottle? And before you answer that, I'm just going to say, <laughs> the first, first time I had a bottle of Hillside Select, I picked up that bottle, I thought, I hope this is heavy because it has extra wine in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mike, uh, Mike Reef from New York, I have to agree with you. I'm wondering the same thing. Why are we using such heavy bottles? Anyway, the history, you know, I've been doing this a long time. So you go through different, you know, different stages. But back in the day, uh, in the early 90s, I mean, we were, Hillside was taken off and, you know, um, it was all image and brand was important and you know all of a sudden it was like the it was like the age of the big heavy bottles and mm -hmm. uh i'm happy to say we weren't the biggest and the baddest but we were pretty big and bad <laughs> but i think i did see somebody once that was actually more massive than ours it was like wow um and we did it for a few years and it's like wow this is kind of ridiculous especially with you know um freight and you know fossil fuels and you know global warming and shipping this stuff so right. what happens unfortunately with um with the wine business is when you want to make a change in packaging it takes a while for it to come around uh hillside is let's see it's uh it's crushed and by the time we release it it's four years later so and yeah. it takes time so at one point we went Back with the 06 vintage, we shaved off about, I think it was about 25, 30% of the weight. And that now we are actually with the 17 Hillside, which we bottled last year. It's going to be released this September. Uh, it's the same bottle that we used for 1.5. So we've gone all the way back. So, but, but, but Mike, you're right. We were way too heavy. So we were way <laughs> wrong. I'm okay to say we were wrong on that one. <laughs> oh, from, man. Uh, from, from Andrew A. Ingram. Uh, he, oh, this is a question I would like to know, too. What wine do you drink that is not your own? But he also wants to know, um, how do you price wine? And how much wine do you hold back from the actual release 
And what do you do with that wine? Okay, well, we got three questions. So what do I drink yeah. that's not my own? Um, well, the, the short answer is everything. Um, <laughs> I, I really, it's really fun to try new wines. I, um, even if it's a wine that doesn't taste very good, it's kind of like, why doesn't this taste good to me? I mean, that's kind yeah. of an exercise. You and I have talked about that. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, but yeah. Um, I drink a lot of, uh, I'm drinking more white wine these days. I love Chablis, Sancerre. And I really love Sangiovese from Italy, um, oh, Fantodi, yeah, and uh, mm. once in a while I'll get crazy if I'm ever in a big bruiser night with uh, you know, like Michael Twelve Tree, my buddy in Australia, his two hands, some monster wines. And he, he says Napa wines are monsters. This guy makes, br- <laughs> br- they're br- br- brutes, they're brutes out there. Um, but it's fun. Um, I'll do Pinots from New Zealand and Oregon. Um, I yeah. still keep, I'm, I'm still searching for that you know $50 retail burgundy red burgundy that's really delicious and that's, that's, yeah. that's I, I can't get it at $50 but um, that's an ongoing challenge uh, pricing wine hey you know um, we, we pay attention we pay attention to see if wine's moving or it's not we pay attention to what's going on with our neighbors uh, we get feedback from customers but the bottom line is you know we're in the business and you know, I, I can't be losing money and my prices are going up all the time. Barrels, equipment, um, you know, power, everything's going up. So, so, um, we don't raise them as aggressively as we did back in the nineties, but, um, we're at a point where it's kind of leveled off, but, um, we've got to cover costs and have a little left over so we can, uh, you know, take Spencer out to lunch. (laughs) <laughs> and there you go. I mean, like you said, it is. <laughs> I like that part of it. It is a business, but it's also a labor of love. It, it, I know it absolutely is. So, so how much wine do you actually hold back from release, and, and what do you do with it? We, you know, years ago, I God, I think we used to hold back like fifty cases of every wine we made, and all of a sudden, I and you kind of forget about it. It's in the warehouse, mm-hmm. you know, which is not on site, and uh, all of a sudden, you look at an inventory report, and you've got like fifty cases of a ten-year-old Chardonnay. It's like, oh no, that's no good. So yeah. we made an effort to minimize what we hold back. We hold back some hillside select every year, um, not a ton, but enough, enough that we can, it, it, we can use it like uh, for special occasions, for traveling, just a treat to show somebody an older hillside. Um, it's probably around a hundred cases worth, if that. And that lasts over like a 10-year period, which is perfect. And sure. um, once in a while, there, there'll be a restaurant or someone wants to do a vertical selection, you know, get three or four bottles of you know, five or six vintages, we can do that uh, for them. But actually, people would probably be surprised. We have a very small library. Um, so it's just because um, we just want to, you know, it's want people to buy it and drink it and enjoy it. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what it's there for. Yeah. Yep. And then you can also hold over a bottle for when Spencer comes up to lunch. That'll be fine. <laughs> what was the one? Is What's it, your favorite? Was it night? Oh, is it ninety-seven or it's the eighty-seven? The, the eighty-seven. Right. You want to you want to tell that story? I was I was oh, up, I'll start it. I yeah. was up there at Schaefer uh, to uh, interview you, Doug, for right. a little segment I was doing for a little wine uh, uh, vignette I was doing, and um, you and I were out walking around the property, and I just happened to mention something about loving your 1987 Hillside Select. So then after we left the the vineyards, you, you pick it up from there. <laughs> well, we'd set this up. You were coming up, and Andy and I were talking, and Andy said, you know, I think Spencer loves, you know, loves old Hillside. I said, great. I said, and I just, off the cuff, I said, Andy said, I said, why don't you pull an 87? He goes, okay. He looked at me. He's like, really? You know, you never go that far back. I said, yeah, but I know, I've known Spencer forever. Let's, what the heck? You know, that'll, that'll be fun. I haven't had it in a year or two. It'll be fun. So we pulled the A7. And then you said that in the vineyard. And we walk in the tasting room and we got the 87 there for you. That was pretty, my eyes almost yeah. popped out of my head. I, I couldn't believe it. It was great. Anyhow, we got a question from um, Mitchell Miller, St. Peter's, Missouri. It says, regarding varietal composition, <clears throat> excuse me. Varietal composition specific to the Relentless and uh, TD9 wines. What is the process the winemaker goes through to decide what the varietal composition will be? And once decided, how is it uh, controlled at the time of blending? I guess he means the percentages of each varietal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, blendings, Elias and I have uh, 
we've gone full circle on blending. Um, people would probably be amazed and probably shocked at how we blend because we really don't blend. Um, so the story goes, when we started out, we'd be, um, we kept every, every block separate. So every block of Merlot, every block of Cab, you know, there'd be, and every tank, so there'd be tanks, there'd be, you know, four or five tanks of Merlot, 10 tanks of Cabernet, couple tanks of Cabernet Franc, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we'd get in the, we'd put in after, you know, six months or so, it's like, let's work on some blends the following spring. So we'd have all these different wines in the lab, you know, and we start p- trying to put it together. Well, how about 10% of that, 15% of that? It was, you know, you've got basically about probably 13 or 14 different lots, you know, separate lots of wine, and you want to make, th- you want to end up with three, three <laughs> red wines. It would be exhausting. It would be, we'd, we're, so we're measure, measuring little, you know, milliliters for, you know, right. on a hundred milliliter sample, you know, how much percent, 10 milliliters of that, five, it's just like, it was ridiculous. And we'd go all, for four or five hours, you're, you're not drinking, you're spitting, but you're still just, exa- your palate's exhausted. Yeah. And we'd come back and do it again the next day, and, and anything we decided, it was like, your palate changes the whole thing. So we, we, we said, this is just a waste of time. This doesn't make any sense. We can't do anything. And we kind of, uh, I think it just happened. We didn't really plan it. We just started making blends early on. And so here's how it works, because we, we know our grape sources. We have consistent grape sources every year. We're pretty sure what grapes, what blocks go into which wines. But he's got, let's say, he's got two different tanks of Cabernet from two different vineyards. They're both solid. They're not hillside. They're definitely going to be 1.5. They're both tasting good. There's no problem. He's, he'll just pull them together right there, right at harvest, right after they're done wow. fermenting, and take it to barrels. And he'll have um, two tanks of Merlot and a small tank of Malbec and a small tank of Cab. And it's like, you know, hmm. these are all solid. This will this will definitely be a TD9, a start of a TD9 blend. Let's put these four tanks together and take it to barrel. And then, wow. then he racks. And so now he's got, instead of having 13, let's just use the number 13, 13 different lots of wine. He's got like about five or six uh-huh. you know and then next time he racks you know five six months later you know he'll fine-tune it and make the final blend and then take it to barrel and let that, let that final blend age for a good year plus in the barrel which we really like to do we like to have it married and going yeah um hillside select gets blended right at the crusher we know which which hillsides are going into hillside and they, they just become hillside tanks right then boom so mm-hmm. so hillside select is basically the blend is made by the time the wine goes to barrel right right the vintage year by halloween right. by thanksgiving and people are blown away by that but but that's how that's kind of how we do it so that's amazing yeah it's, it's fascinating stuff um uh, doug uh, uh, doug dave dave Enden wants to know um if see he says if doug schaefer was stranded on a desert island and you had only one imported wine to drink until you got rescued what wine would it be <laughs> Wait, you said that was Dave Engen? Yeah, Dave Engen. Dave yeah. Engen, my buddy, my longtime buddy ah. from Utah, now California, who's sold Schaefer wine forever in Utah and <laughs> California all over. Hey, Dave, I miss skiing with you, buddy, in Utah. Um, and I really like his question. It's like the, the one wine to drink before I got rescued. Usually it's like before you die on a desert island. So I, I like the rescue part. Um, yeah, I like that part too. <laughs> imported wine, you know, I'd have to go, um, oh, man. Because I'd want to tell him about it. I'd have to go Flacinello from uh, Fantodi. Gian, Giovanni, yes. Giovanni Manetti, who's in the heart of Tuscany, a wonderful guy, makes great wines, Sangiovese's. Oh, yeah. His winery is called Fantodi, but he has a special wine called Flacinello. And uh, I'd want to drink that because then I want to get rescued and go see him and tell him about (laughs) What an (laughs) an amazing choice. I love that wine, too. Good. How about you, Spencer? What what would you drink on a desert island? Well, you know, my my love affair, (laughs) and hoping to be rescued, as you said, too. Um, My love affair with wine, Doug, began with Bordeaux. uh, And I I was seduced by a, a, a bottle of 1966 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild in the year 1976. And this is before I knew anything really wow. about wine. And But, you know, we now know that that wine was from a great wine from a great vintage and it had 10 years of bottle age, and it just blew me away. So even though my 
my love affair with wine includes all wines. I love all great wines from all regions. Bordeaux was probably still my favorite region, and because that was the wine that first stole my heart, I would take a bottle, a well-aged bottle of, of Lafitte Rothschild. However, much like you, Doug, I have totally fallen in love with the Sangiovese grape as it is grown in Tuscany. And uh, well, I, I, maybe next to a, a great bottle of Chateau Lafitte or a great bottle of Schaefer Hillside Select, I might go for a, just any great Brunello di Montalcino. There you go. Yeah. 66 Lafitte, huh? Wow. 66 Lafitte. And oh, then, God, yeah, I bet she was beautiful. I, oh, my gosh. I can't, I mean, do you have time for me to tell you uh, my yeah, experience with I, that wine? Yeah. I, my, my wife and I were taking a friend out to celebrate his engagement for the second time around. Okay. And um, we, were, we were at a, he lived in Baltimore, so we had gone to a, a steakhouse in Baltimore. And I knew nothing about wine at that time. I had a curiosity about it. So I thought this great occasion demands a great bottle of wine, right? Celebrating my friend's engagement. So I looked at the wine list having no clue what I was looking for and picked the most expensive thing on the list. <laughs> and the most expensive thing on the list was the 66 Chateau Lafitte. So the server brings it to the table, pulls the cork out, the bouquet lifted out of the bottle and pulled me in like I was a, like a cartoon character. You know, right, right. Pulled, but, and when I took that first taste... I didn't even want to swallow the wine. The, the sensations that were exploding in my palate were incredible. And that's how I fell in love with wine, right there. Wow. So yeah. Great story. And, then, and I began doing what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, you find a wine that you like and you learn about that wine or that region before you, you know, you can't learn everything at once. You right. Can't go to every, so I started studying Bordeaux and fell in love with all the Bordeaux varietals. The next logical step was to you know, learn as much as I could about Napa Valley, Cabernet, and, and, and Bordeaux blends. And wow. then I started branching out after that. But, but I digress. So from, from Hugo Castro in okay. uh, Miami, Florida, says, um, Doug, I can usually afford a purchase of just one or two bottles of Hillside Select each year. I consider myself lucky, by the way. Uh, given the limited, amount of, uh, limited number of bottles for each vintage, uh, what would you say is the appropriate cellaring time before opening the bottles? Oh, Hugo, good question. I um, I think cellaring time is a matter of personal taste, definitely. Um, personal for Hillside, I usually like them nine, ten, eleven years after vintage. Um, I'm happy to say I'm old enough now that Hillside lasts twenty to twenty-four to twenty-five or more years, which is great. But I like them around nine or ten years because they've got some bottle aged, some bouquet, some softness, some, uh, we call them secondary aromas, kind of herbal and tea and, yeah. and, and tobacco, but still has, but at that point it still has some primary fruit, which I really love. So kind of that's me. But if you talk to Elias, uh, my buddy here, you know, he's like, no, no, I like him at 15, 18 years. He likes more age on him. So, you know, difference yeah. of opinions. Um, so you kind of, kind of go with your own gut and what you like. Yeah. How about that's, how that's, about you, Spencer? I, you like them old or young or in between? You know, I'm, I'm sort of like you, uh, Doug. I, I I think uh, I think my advice to anyone would be to go with your gut, but or go with your palate. <laughs> but um, it, I think it depends on what type of wine I'm drinking. For example, if I'm drinking Bordeaux, I like I like him with at least ten years of age, sometimes more, because you know that, that's still how they make them over there is to be enjoyed at least a decade later. But if I'm talking about great Napa Valley cabs, you know, I love your wine, as you know. I love um, Groth Reserve. Right. Uh, the, those are wines that uh, they, I, they're beautiful when they when they're first released. So I like to sample them when they're young, and then wait about eight to ten years, and then go back to them, and then maybe up to about like fourteen, fifteen years. Yeah. So oh, neat. It, yeah. Yeah. Depends on what I'm drinking, you know. Okay. Uh, and it, as for Tuscany, I mean, I like old Brunello, but I like young County Classico Reserva. So, ah, <laughs> you really are a wine geek. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 love, I just love wine. I just, and, and I love the people who make wine because everybody's got a story. You know, like your story is amazing and, you know, Bob Mondavi's story was amazing. Everybody in the wine world has a story that's, that's different and, and yet fascinating. That's true. It's true. So on we go to Amanda Sund from Atlanta, Georgia. She says, is there any wine that you haven't tried yet that you'd like to try? Oh, boy. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, so we're going back to, oh, yeah, I know. I know where we're going to go. We're going to go to Burgundy. Um, 
I've ridden by the vineyard on a bicycle, but I've never tried the wine. Um, Romane Conte's Latash, the oh. Latash vineyard. I've never yes. tried that. I've never tried that wine. Uh, you should. You should. <laughs> I knew. I oh knew you'd goodness. say that. Damn you, you Spencer! You get I'm all the. You, you get to have all the fun. Well, uh, you know, here's the funny thing, though. I'm I, look. I love all great wines, as you know, but I'm partial to the to the Bordeaux grapes, and I've never been a great lover of that's right of Pinot Noir. Yet I had friends back in New York. You, you, you know, you, back in the East Coast when I was there, you could divide wine lovers into two groups: either they were they were Bordeaux lovers or Burgundy lovers. And one of my friends loved Burgundy. We'd always have these tastings, and he'd bring a great bottle of Latage or right. you know some of the other DRC wines. So I got to taste all those wines without having to pay for them because he brought them to the tasting. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were pretty remarkable, <laughs> pretty remarkable. Nice. So I. How about, of, How about you? How about you? A wine you haven't tried? I haven't tried. Um, gosh, I've been so fortunate. I've tried, tried them some, all. You know, <laughs> I know well. Um, I, you know, I, there are some great wines from from the the uh, Piemonte region of hmm. Italy. Some of the great uh, Barolos and, and, and Barbarescos I have not tried. Uh, and I love the way Angelo Gaia makes his wines. I guess if I had to go for something I haven't tried yet, it would be Angelo Gaia's top of the wine Barbaresco. That's what I would want to try. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, I'd like to try that one too. Yeah, I've had a, he's, he makes great wines. He's, he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Bill, Bill Harkins uh, wants to know, Doug, can you talk about what role yeast has in wine? Does yeast uh, help deliver an aroma that the winemaker is trying to achieve? And how do you achieve consistency in your wines? Um, good question. Yeast, well, yeast is the workhorse. Um, basically, you know, making wines, kind of like making bread. Um, don't quote me, but basically, you know, <laughs> the yeast, uh, take the sugars and, uh, from the grapes and, uh, consume it and replicate and they, they give off heat, alcohol and carbon dioxide gas. So basically without yeast, we can't make wine. Um, and there's different types of yeast, different strains, um, some you know do better with certain white wines, certain red wines. I think it's very subtle, and and they do compart or they do give different flavors. But it's very very subtle. I mean, it would be tough. I mean, it's tough for anyone to um, discern. It's more of a sometimes there's a textural feel. They might you know one yeast might give to a wine compared to another. But it's again super subtle. On that same vein, I think I think he asked about consistency in wine. I mean, yeah. the the most the best thing for consistency for us and quality is quality of fruit. Um, so vineyards, which when we used to start out, no one paid too much attention to vineyards. I mean, that's where the action is because you've got to have top grapes to make top wines. I mean, right. uh, our winemaker Elias in the summertime. He's in the vineyards two or three days a week, just working and making sure things are getting done right to get the best grapes possible. Because if, if the grapes aren't tip-top great shape, there's no way he's going to make great wines out. So it's it's having that consistency of fruit year to year is is what's important for consistency and top wine quality. That's what yeah. that's our program. Yeah. You know, since you mentioned the fruit, uh, Doug, you know, I know it's become a cliche now, but uh, people still tend to refer to California wines, especially Napa Valley um, cabs, as being more fruit-driven than, say, their their counterparts in Bordeaux or maybe Chile uh, made from the same grapes. Is, is that because we have a, a warmer, longer growing season here, or is it, does it have to do with catering to the American palate, which tends to like big, rich, robust flavors? Um, I don't think it's palate. I think it's what we're what we're dealing with with our climate. Um, yeah. yeah, we're just a, a warm climate, and we our grapes to you have to get them ripe um, to get the uh, I call them non green flavors. And uh, in getting them ripe, usually it's higher sugar, and the results in you know bigger, richer, fuller bodied wines. And it's just kind yeah. of a uh, it's, it has to do with place and. That's what's fun about the world of wine, as as you've spoken to. Um, every place is different, and uh, that's that's what's fun about it. You know, um, yeah. Cabernet from Bordeaux is not Cabernet from Napa, and there, there are differences, and it has to do with you know the the locations where they're grown. So it's it's that's fun. Right. So, so that, that reminds me of something you were talking about earlier in the podcast. You were talking about your love of uh, Chablis, uh, Chablis and Sancerre, and you know you're talking about the the Chardonnay grape, and yet. The Chardonnay grape grown here or maybe in Oregon 
uh, has a, a different uh, character, different different profile. I guess. Oh, totally. That's why. I mean, yeah, I'm really proud of the Chardonnay we make here. I really am. I like it. But man, mm-hmm. man, I would <laughs> you know I would do anything if I could make Chardonnay like a, taste like a Chablis. I mean, yeah, and like I can. Yeah. And so I need to you know go buy some land there. Or something. <laughs> I need to learn no, no, French. No, 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 <laughs> no more buying land. You got enough. <laughs> no, no, no. no Why you, not? Why not? Wouldn't well, it be fun? Think I get it, to go to would get to go to France a couple, three times a year. Grow, you know, five acres of Chablis. Make a little. Ah, oh, be so much fun. Oh, only if you invite <laughs> me over to do a little tasting once in a while. All right. <laughs> doors, doors always open. Okay. Here we go from uh, Kevin Christie, uh, Boca Raton. Says, "What is your recommendation for building out a nice?" Home wine collection uh, regarding uh, wine selection, variety, storage. uh, Oh, until I have a wine cabinet. So, okay. So how do you build out a nice collection at home with regard to wine selection, wine storage, um, varietal? And he says, uh, any other advice for a home collector who's just getting started? Well, I think, you know, the actual physical storage space we talked about earlier basements cabinets you know a little air conditioner if you got so that's been covered you know until you get a a wine cabinet um but just again try to keep the temperature consistent as far as selection i think you you uh mentioned that earlier spencer um just the you know find start out with the wines you like that you really enjoy and then talk to a sommelier at a restaurant or a wine merchant your wine merchants can be a lot of help i mean you go and say look at i really like this type of this type of wine from this producer i you know this varietal you know is what else is like it and they will steer you and give you some tips and you know, so you try a bottle of that and a bottle of that and say yeah i like that or i don't like and, and talk to him about that go back and give the guy feedback or the gal and say it wasn't as much good as I liked this other one first, but you know, and that way you can start to develop um, kind of an awareness of different wines that are similar to the ones you started with. So I would start there, and kind of branch out slowly, and then, and if you find some, a merchant or a psalm that you trust, um, say, hey, you know, give me something, you know, turn me on to something crazy you think I might like, and uh, mm-hmm. you're either going to like it or not like it, and. Even if you don't like it and you paid money for it, you learn something because you're not going to go back there again. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's how you start out. And uh, yeah. when you're out to dinner, you can. Uh, you're, and that's another uh, place to get ex, you know experience with different wines. Um, different wine shops have you know wine tastings. You know, the winemakers will come in and pour their wines on a Friday night or a Tuesday night. That's how. Right. Just in other words, yeah. get exposure to as many different types of wines as you can. And that'll that'll it'll start to happen. It happened to Spencer. <laughs> it did. Well, what, what sage advice? That's that's almost the story of my my wine education, uh, Doug. When I you know had that wine epiphany with the right. sixty six Lafitte I told you about, uh, I started going to visit this local wine wine merchant whose um, store was about a block or two from the ABC studios where I worked in New York, and I would just hang out with him and right. talk about wine. He gave me such great advice and such great guidance, and really contributed so much to my. Uh, my learning process, you know, and to my appreciation of wine. So, that, that, and I think any decent wine merchant is always happy to offer advice and to talk about wine with with customers, right? Especially with 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 newcomers like like I was at that time. Oh, and yeah. and, and the other thing, Spencer, people forget about is you know, there's no right and wrong answers. I mean, especially when you're yeah. starting out, and it's like it's it's a little bit overwhelming, and you know, it's just. You know, we shoot ourselves in the foot making it so special, special, special. You know, if, if somebody pours you a glass of wine and says, hey, this is the best thing in the world, you're going to love this wine, and you don't yeah. like it, that's fine. You know, yeah. I, you know, you can actually tell them you don't like it. You, you might want to be polite and not do that. But, but, <laughs> but if you don't like it, that's you and that's your palate. You stick with that. You know, just because that's someone right. says this is the best thing since sliced bread doesn't mean you have to like it, you know, at that's, all, at all. That's so, I mean, true. <laughs> so true. That's, that's also true uh, very often, I think, with food and wine pairing, don't you think? You, oh, yeah. Generally, you drink the wine you like with the food you like. I mean, you may not want to have a glass of Chablis with a, with a, a peppercorn steak. <laughs> but but you know you know what I mean. Yeah, you, you I probably may, would. <laughs> may, <laughs> you might you might start with that, but uh, you know you, you match the flavors you like with, and, and there are no hard and fast rules. Right. And no one no one should dictate you, to you what what is good and what's bad. I guess. No, and uh, if, if anybody does, they're not worth your time. So just I agree. Move on. 
Rich, uh, is, is Rich Haiba or Haiba, H-A-I-B-A-H, I okay. want to know, uh, when you bring in your Chardonnay grapes and uh, in for crush, how long do you generally wait before pressing? Uh, what factors are you considering when deciding how long to macerate a white wine? Uh, are there any tests or sensory cues uh, for this, aside from just trial and error from year to year? Well, Chardonnay, we don't macerate. What we actually do with Chardonnay is we bring the grapes in and uh, we whole cluster press them. So the grapes are picked in the middle of the night. They're here by 5 or 6 in the morning, and we, we load them right into the press, stems the whole cl- it's called whole clusters the whole cluster stems and everything right into the press so it does not go through a distemmer and we press those clusters and get the juice and it's nice and cool and uh, juice goes into the winery and uh, begins its you know path to becoming wine with barrel fermentation so mm-hmm. um, macerating is what that means is when grapes are actually cr- crushed and pumped into a tank it's juice and skins it's called must and it's usually done with red grapes they'll macerate on the skins for a while before starting fermentation uh white grapes it's not done very often but some people do do it um i think uh some of the trendy orange wines i think that's how they get them to be orange color they they macerate on the skins for a while before they press them and ferment yeah because um Years ago in the 80s when we first started out, that was the deal. There was no whole cluster pressing or very little of it. And most people put their white grapes through the crusher and made must, if you will, um, which is juice and skins. And then um, I remember back then we'd either press it right away or we might let skin contact is what we called it. We might let it sit for six or eight hours and then press it. Um, I think the thought was to get more complexity, but... Over time, we found that it was better just to get rid of the skins as fast as you can. So that's why we just yeah. whole cluster and go with that. So, got it. Yeah, got it. Kind of fun. Orange wine. Well, um, orange. I was in. I was in somewhere in Europe at uh, some wine bar, trendy wine bar, and they were doing the orange wine thing, which is kind of different and kind of cool. And I said, I said to the guy, I said, "So tell me how they make this stuff." He was a wine guy. He says, "Well, they, you know, they crush it and they they let it sit on the skins for you know eight or ten hours." I go. I've done that. <laughs> and he looked, he looked at me and he goes, you have? You do? I said, yeah, I did back in the 80s and it didn't work out very well and the wines just didn't hold up. He says, wow. <laughs> he looked at me like I was a, a pioneer. I was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. I love yeah. that. <laughs> uh, James Gallagher says, um, uh, here's a good one, Doug. It's a month till the end of the world. Oh. What, <laughs> it might be. He <laughs> says, uh, what new world wine would you be drinking to close it out? And if the budget was $30 a bottle, max, hmm, what's on your go-to list? Oh, man. Okay. So now we got the end of the world. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I've only got six bottles of it left. Um, it would be the seventy, the Schaefer seventy-eight cab, the first wine my dad wow. made, which was the yeah. great grandfather to Hillside Select. Yeah, that's what I'd drink. Wow! I had it a couple of years ago. Uh, it's still holding up. It's amazing. Is, oh yeah, yeah. It is? Wow! What's, describe it. What's what's the character like? Uh, yeah, it's the... just soft. It's really wow. soft. What um, the nose is just—it's all secondary tertiary aromas. There's no oh, fruit left. Man. Colors, you know, pretty, you know, pretty orange brown. Um, but actually, it was. Um, but the nose is is is. Um, it's not like off. It's not weird. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's fine. And the thing that was really blew me away. Usually, with an older wine like that, once you put it in the glass and you smell it, it's like you got about. 30 seconds or two minutes and then it's just like right. there's no there's no aroma right, yeah, right. which is it's just gone um we had this um it lasted for like an hour smelling great wow. great for an hour it was amazing it was really cool the, i had a very similar experience with um with a, an old bottle of lafitte rothschild I, <laughs> excuse me i was <laughs> been older than the one i described before i i was born in 1947 right right and you know everyone raves about the 1945 um vintage in bordeaux but 47 was also a phenomenal vintage in bordeaux so in the night early uh was it late 80s or early oh yeah it was the late 1980s that's right i had i, I had turned 40. i acquired uh, a few bottles of the 1947 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. 
And um, I remember my, my tasting experience, the first one I opened, you know, I had that, that amber rusty edge you were talking about. Right. And it looked, it looked so light and kind of faded. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what's this going to taste like? But it still, after 40 years, had retained that, that elegant um, Lafitte bouquet. And, and it tasted like nectar. It was just unbelievable. Wow. But, but I guess I was lucky because you're, you're right. With a, you, you, if you acquire a wine like that already 40 years old, you, you don't really know how it was stored right. or where it was stored. So, you know, it's, it's a gamble. But that, that was a gamble worth taking, <laughs> I must say. That's well, great. The other question, other question James had was, uh, if your budget is $30 per bottle max, what's, what's in your go-to list? 30 or less. Oh. Yo. You know, I don't drink it very much. I'd go for a really yeah. good. I'd really go for a really good rosé. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, I guess. I, you know, there are there a couple of cabs out there. I don't know if they're still under thirty, but the last time I had a bottle of Chad C H A D Chad, right? It was about twenty nine ninety nine. So that's a there you pretty go. good one for thirty bucks. And I think Franciscan makes a pretty pretty nicely balanced cabernet for about thirty bucks. There you go. All right, from a Brent Wagoner from Moraine, Ohio. Um, says, how do the fires of the past few years, and especially the 2020 fires, change winemaking and vineyard plantings and storage? Um, I'll give you that one first because he's got a couple more questions too. Brent Wagner. I know Brent Wagner. He lives in Ohio. I've <laughs> Brent, how you doing, buddy? Good to hear. Good to not hear you, but to read your question here. Um the fires were tough. They basically, um, what we've got to do is make sure you know, we've got clearance around vineyards and clearance around winery buildings and homes. And uh, that's been going on for a number of years now. So that's, that's important. And keeping, uh, keeping fuel loads down, grasses mowed, you know, clearing out dead wood in the hillsides, that type of thing. Um, it's uh it's 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 a reality here um it's not just a local problem it's a state and nationwide problem and there's been a lot going on with research on controlling it and control burns and you know basically getting ahead of the situation so you don't have these these massive fires so um we're working on it's an ongoing issue for sure uh brent also wants to know what you see on uh pricing on, on high-end Napa wines over $100 uh, SRP uh, doing over the next five years, and why does your wine taste so good? <laughs> well, as far as Brent's concerned, if he's buying my wine, I'm going to keep it way over $100. Because yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I do for my good friends. No, <laughs> a special Brent price. Um, Napa cabs, Napa wines over $100, um, even in these kind of unsettled pandemic times, um, if it's a quality brand and the and the the wine's got the quality, it's going to stay there. They're going to stay above a hundred dollars. This yeah. uh, this is an expensive business. Um, it's it's it costs a lot of money to grow grapes. We don't get massive tonnages, so that's a that's a challenge. Uh, barrels are barrel prices are going up. Labor labor's gone up tremendously the last few years. It's not going down. Um, so I don't see. I don't see prices going down in a big way. I see, hopefully, I think they're going to level, but uh, but the, the costs are here to stay. So, and why do our wines taste so good? Um, lucky? No, um, <laughs> a lot of hard work. Um, I, I mentioned it before. Great grapes. You got to have good grapes. You have to have great grapes, and then you've got to, you know, just take care of them and uh, don't mess them up. Pay attention. There's a lot of details in winemaking. A lot of details. So. Yeah, we've been fortunate. True. Yeah, so you have indeed. There you go. Uh, from uh, Mark Cardona in Long Beach, uh, if you were starting Schaefer Vineyards today, knowing everything you now know, how would you do it differently, or would you do anything differently? <laughs> um, you know, the one that comes to mind is uh, is equipment. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money in the beginning, and uh, you know, we're using secondhand crusher stemmers. You're using, you know funky pumps that you know were fine but they just beat the heck out of the wines they weren't gentle pumps um bottling line was just something we found in a garage somewhere it was like you know it was just like a rat trap uh having better equipment would have been a you know figuring out a way to afford better equipment early on would have helped because better equipment and technology we have found 
really helps you make better quality wine. Um, yeah. So, and then we we found that out over the years as we started to make money, we could buy better equipment. It's like, wow, the quality is improving just because we have better equipment and technology. So that would sure. be a big one. Sure. Um, I'd like to say I would have worried less um, because I had, <laughs> I have, I have, and had, and still have. You know, not sleepless nights, but you you wake up because your mind's racing. But I think. It would have been nice to worry less, but I also think that's probably part of the deal. If you're going to do it, yeah. you've got to be on it all the time. So not too many changes. Right. What about personnel, hiring hiring and firing? <laughs> oh, that's always a, that's always a, a challenge. Um, we're a pretty small winery. I've been actually really fortunate. I think I probably would have done things pretty much the same. We've had, you know, the average, yeah. average tenure of the Schaefer employee is probably up to... 15 or 16 or 17 years. I've got people wow, here that they stay here a long amazing. time. Yeah. We, in fact, we need, yeah. To we need to find some young folks because we're all getting kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> well, a good, good red wine helps preserve us. No, we've, been, keep, we've been very fortunate. We've, we've had great, great people working here at Schaefer, and, and it's a team effort. Without them, we wouldn't yeah. be where we are. So very oh, lucky. My question, way. Doug, is what, what do you love most about doing this podcast? You know what I love the most, Spencer, is um, just what you said earlier. It's the stories. Because um, I've had people like you in here and um, people I know well, and all of a sudden we're in a conversation and I f hear stories about good friends I've never heard before. You know, yeah. from their childhood, from this, from that. They, they did this, They, you know, they, how they met their wife or husband. And uh, it's, it's always just really fun. It's enjoyable. And, you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about wine techie talk, which maybe some people would want. But um, I think the stories or personalities are a lot more fun. So that's my favorite yeah. part, without a yeah, doubt. That, I, my, my favorite, well, yeah, I mean, other than just enjoying the taste and the aroma and the, you know, the, the drinking the wine, I just enjoy being around people who appreciate wine and love wine and, and as you said, have stories to tell that sort of enhance the enjoyment of the wine, add another dimension to your understanding of the wine, you know? I right. Think it's fantastic. Gosh, this has been so much fun. I'm so glad you invited me to join you for this well, day. This is you're the best question man I've ever had. So if we ever do this again, you're you're, I'm, you're, the, you're the guy. So you're cool oh, don't that. say if we ever. Just say when we do when this again. When we do again. it again. When we get the next batch of, batch of questions, we'll, we'll call you up. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Spencer. Uh, hey, thanks so much for doing this, buddy. Great talking to you again. Thank you, Doug. Hope to see you soon. All right. Be good. Right. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one. I imagine we'll do another episode like this down the road. So anytime you got a question, please be sure to send it to us at podcast at SchaeferVineyards.com. I really want to thank Spencer Christian for being our co-pilot here today. I knew this would be a lot more fun if we could add his perspective, his love of wine, and his sense of humor. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes as that helps other people find the podcast. Thanks for checking out this episode. We'll see you next time.